Ah, uh, yes. Sometimes everything is wrong. And I know many Indians fans feeling that way after just a brutal, painful, wacky, zany, just mad game to sending the Indians home. It's the Selvius Godcast. We're here for you. Let us be your therapy. We've had people who, uh... They wanted a podcast, what, at like four in the morning? <laughs> yeah. After that crazy game, as, now, we're, as we're still in the press box. Hold we probably on. could have pulled it off. <laughs> Unfortunately, with new COVID rules, they kick us out of the ballpark much sooner than they normally would in a regular setting. So we can't just sit there until seven in the morning. Now, I rolled in to my house as my wife was leaving for work. So when was I going to get a Selfie's <laughs> Godcast in there before my two-year-old decided it was a good time to wake up at seven right there on the dot. So I got a good solid hour and a half of sleep last night. Yeah, that was the third latest I've ever left the ballpark, or I guess earliest, if you do it by time of day. Um I mean, Game 7 of the World Series in 2016, I remember leaving the park at 6 a.m., walking into my apartment downtown as my now wife's alarm clock was going off. And then I remember there was a random game in there, 2014 or 15, where I think it was a Friday night, there was a rain delay, then it went extra innings, and I remember leaving at 4 in the morning. And last night was just short of that. And the shocking thing is that's like a normal NBA playoff game that features LeBron because he's typically uh, making you feel it as far as how long you have to wait until he gets to the podium. But uh, that was a thing that happened last night, huh? That was a game that well, LeBron occurred. LeBron winning an NBA Finals game? <laughs> last night was, was one of those those nights where... You look at everything that took place, and it's like, man, could you just have written this to be one massive punch to the gut after another in any other way, in any other circumstance? Knowing that this could have been the final game of Francisco Lindor as a member of the Indians, and that extends to a few other players on the team too, Carlos Santana, Brad Hand, and then Brad Hand blowing his first save. The entire series you had... Shane Bieber getting lit up in a way that he'd never been lit up at any point before. Carrasco can't makes it out of the fourth inning. The guy that you acquired to play a good defensive center field slips, falls down 27 times last night. Get that man some cleats. And then, of course, LeBron James. So that was uh, not a night to remember <laughs> in a lot of ways for Cleveland fans. I can't tell you how many people asked... Not just necessarily for a prediction on the series, but just like, what's the key to victory? I don't fucking know. You think I could have predicted that? Well, not giving well, up 22 runs. Is, is, that would have yeah, been a good start. The, I think the key to victory in game two is going to be Brad Hand holding the lead after, you know, in the 300th minute of the game. Like, I, who can foresee that? And that, I think, is what October is all about. And Well, I guess late September also. 
They did get to taste October. It was in October to remember. Yeah. For, for about uh, an hour and ten minutes. Yeah. That's so it was technically. They played into October. There's no way around that. And even if you... Last night was such a weird game that even as Brad Hand blows it, it's not like you think of a closer meltdown. You think of him giving up home runs, extra base hits, just getting blasted all around the yard. And yet last night you have the leadoff walk, which is absolutely his fault. But then you have the high chopper, which he should have made the play on. But it wasn't like it was the easiest of all plays as he's having to backpedal, avoid rosin bags, a pair of them. Because I think Aroldis Chapman left his out there. Maybe he knew and he was putting more obstacles behind the mound for Brad Hand to have to defend. And then you had the, what, what did that ball bounce? Like 42 times up the middle that eventually gave New York the lead that just squeaked by Brad Hand and beyond the infielders that one of my Twitter followers said looked a lot like 1997 Game 7 against the Marlins. Thinking, wow, that Except dude, that one that went dude. over Charles Nagy's outstretched arm. Yeah. And this one went under Brad Hand, who had like hopped and done a 180 and looked <laughs> like he was a spider monkey about to pounce. It was very strange. Yeah, so my Twitter feed just went for it last night. I, I, I don't even know where to really start if we want to spend any time breaking down game two. But I can tell you that for a team that was expected to be carried by their, their pitching and really have their fate determined by their pitching, as I wrote last night. They had their fate determined by their pitching, but not in the way that any of us really expected. Yeah. Well, I think if the Indians pull that game out, I mean, that is absolutely a game that Ethan Zuppi and Linus Meisel are probably reviewing on a 2037 episode of the Selvia's Godcast. Um, it would have been a classic. It would have been an all-timer. And yeah, at that point, it would have been so, the, the Luplo is, is Godcast stepping off the bench in a situation I never would have put him in, but I'm an idiot. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to get to, and then at the same time, it's like, I don't know how much Indians fans want to hear granular dissection of a game that ended in heartbreak. It's like every time there is just this classic moment in recent Indians postseason history, you can't really dive into it the way you wanted because it has a sour outcome at the end. I mean, there's a large segment of the population that just doesn't get the Rajay Davis home run hype because the Indians lost an hour later. It's weird. And so, I don't know. Do you want to dive into that game? I mean, it was it was the antithesis of everything the Indians had stood for for 60 games. You know, Bieber looked worse than pedestrian. Brad Hand blew his first save of the year. Karen Check had allowed... One home run all season, and then first batter. The guy who I, I wrote, Giovanni Urshela, was a Cleveland frog who morphed into the Prince of New York. Like, this guy is the best player in baseball, it seems like. I mean, there's... Who did he kiss so to get that to done? <laughs> yeah. Or who kissed him? I don't know how that story works. Whatever. I mean, it's just there's so much that didn't make sense. And that's also what makes playoff baseball fun, but... Boy, I think Indians fans are kind of tired of it after 10 consecutive elimination game losses, what, eight consecutive playoff game losses in general. And and look, we've said it, they're not going to do one of those teardowns where you lose 100 games for five years, build it up from the ground up. Um, but there's going to be some retooling and restructuring. 
and some significant changes. And I think that really hit home to a lot of people last night just to think about how, and I think the twins can start to maybe think about this too, sometimes your best chance in October is your first one, but you don't realize it until it's too late. Well, as we've joked about before, I don't think the, the 2016 Indians said, well, it's okay if we go out there and lose Game 7 because we'll have many opportunities to go win this thing. Of course, they, everyone's in that position trying to win. Yes, but in the aftermath of it, that's your motivation. And that's what reassures and relaxes fans. That's how the media reassures fans is to say that this is the beginning of something great. And it might be, and it, it has been. But, I mean, you can't tell me. Like the Indians were built to win the World Series in 2020, or that they were no, no, they were more they were, in 2020 to win it than they were in 2019. They were it's, built it's to get into the trend. to get into the random number generator and see if their number got called, and that is the way that they are going to continuously built for many years, and it is going to lead to probably a lot of the same feelings in many Octobers. The downside of making a lot of postseasons is you're going to have a lot of heartbreak because you're probably not going to win a lot of them, especially. If you're not giving yourself maybe a little bit of a better chance by spending some money, supplementing the roster, going into the postseason looking like the Dodgers, and you know you can at some point point to them and say, well, they never could get over the hump, and so maybe they weren't as good as everyone. Well, no, they were really good, but it's still really difficult to win a World Series, but they're able to also spend money on top of making smart decisions, and the Indians don't have that spending money part. Uh, to go along with the decisions that they have to, to make. So it makes the, the decision-making uh, more of a, a thread-the-needle sort of situation that we talk about a lot. You're going to have to hit on pretty much every move you make, and you're going to have to hope for some good luck. And they didn't get much of it, if at all, in the short two-game sweep here by New York. And if this is going to continuously be the way that they're built, and it's what we anticipate... Then they're going to go into a lot of postseasons, just good enough to get in, but probably not good enough to ever really win it. And that's going to, I think, have us talking about the same sorts of things on every Godcast that follows every postseason exit. Yeah, the, the frustrating thing is, then we talk about, has the front office done a good enough job to fill out this roster? And then that leads to a conversation about ownership. And it inevitably leads back to the same question, which is, you can't if you're losing tons of money every year and it's terrible and you have to slash payroll again. Why do you own the team? And that's the question we can't answer because Dolan hasn't answered it, and so we're left just kind of with our hands up, saying I don't really know what the clear answer is. And I'm with you. Like the strategy to get into the postseason and have a good team as often as possible is a good one, um, especially on this budget. But you have to either have the flexibility to be able to address needs that you have because the ownership can't just assume that the front office is going to bat a thousand every year Yeah, because they haven't and they've made tons of great moves and we praise them for it. And they have an incredible system where they draft and develop pitching, especially, and it's great, but they have not been perfect. I don't know many front offices that would be. And those mistakes always seem more glaring on the grand stage. But isn't and it isn't I, it weird though that the way that they lost this series against New York, I can't 
I can't complain in the same ways that I was anticipating I would need to complain at the end of this. I, 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 I was ready to talk about, well, they didn't do enough offensively to give themselves a chance. Well, they were knocking the ball around all throughout game two. And, I mean, to their That's credit, they scored simple. three in game one. It's not like they weren't even there whatsoever. They were just so far behind the eight ball because of their pitching. So how do I – I mean, I know how you can get – upset with the front office and and say well you didn't do enough in these cer certain situations you didn't go out and fix the outfield but again you look at this postseason and the guy that swung the hottest bat was the guy that got at the trade deadline for mike clevenger in those two games it's weird you know i i was ready to pick apart what the the front office could have done better what ownership could have done to help them but at the same time if your stud ace cy young no doubt about it pitcher pitches like shit in game one and your center fielder that is supposed to play good defense and has been graded well as a good defender opens the door for Carrasco to get kicked out in the fourth, and then your, your strikeout artist that everyone is extremely high on comes out and gives up the grand slam. I mean, these are your star players that you're counting on. I, I, I guess I just wasn't prepared to be upset or frustrated in the ways that Indians fans are feeling now because of the way that they did lose these games. It's not about these two games. It's about the broader picture. It's about the fact that they didn't make the playoffs last year. And I know they won 93 games and they looked really good down the stretch, but they still fell short. And they came into this season with a team that was worse. I mean, how how long have we talked about this in other podcasts? How many years are we going to talk about them addressing the outfield every winter? And we're going to look at the free agent list, I'm sure, in some podcast in November. And we're going to find all the outfielders who they can get for $4 million or less. And we'll talk about which ones we like most. Like, it's how, at what point does somebody, whether it's the front office doing something different or ownership allowing the front office to be more creative and give them flexibility, at what point do you have to... Just realize that something's not working and you need to find a legitimate answer, whether it's the outfield, whether it's getting some offense at the catcher position, whether it's getting help in the bullpen. It doesn't like it's not about these two games. This is a tiny sample. And, you know, if they would have won this series, they might have advanced to the division series best of five and scored two runs in four games against the Rays. Like I I think there would be a better chance of that happening than them scoring nine runs a game again. But I, it's the broader scope to me and the fact that, you know, you might very well might lose Lindor and Santana in hand. And I know those first two guys didn't have great years, but did you maximize Francisco Lindor's time here? That's what I mean. When you got to the World Series in 2016, that was Lindor's first full season in Cleveland. So everybody assumed that the best days were yet to come. They go out and add Edwin Encarnacion, and the payroll is the highest it's ever been. And they win 102 games, and things are looking great, and they fall short, and it's immediately tuck your tail behind between your legs and, and run inside and, and do things different and just keep the team as is. Don't add at all. Like, it, it's, it, I really wonder, like, if you could go back in time, would, is this the route you really wanted to take with Lindor? You wanted to have your best opportunity be when he was at his youngest and when the team was was completely different. You, you let it get worse as it went on. And, and I just, I don't really, I, I don't know. I, I think back to Manny Acta's era and in 2011, they went 80 and 82. Remember they started off really hot 
it was a fluke. They weren't a good team, but like they were scrappy and, and they won some close games. They finished 80 and 82. They gave Manny Acta an extension. And then the next year they come back. They're right around 500 for a while. Then they have the August from hell. And that costs Manny Acta's job. And it was like, it was like that was the only time I can remember ownership and just the organization as a whole being upset and saying like something needs to change here. This isn't right. And I know this is different. You still have a winning team. You still have good players. They do still have a good young nucleus, even without Lindor. But it's not enough. We've seen it's not enough. And at some point, you have to change, you have to tweak something to make sure that you are not just stagnant. Because that has proven, they haven't won a playoff series since 2016. That's the one year during this eight-year run of success. They've had one year where... They've advanced in the playoffs. I don't disagree with you, and anybody that's spent any amount of time listening to this podcast knows that I don't disagree with anything that you've said, and it, a lot of what you said is stuff that we've talked about for many, many episodes, and we've spent many off-seasons talking about it, and when we give them the credit that they deserve, we, we try to do that, but we're also very critical in the ways that we don't think they, or the, the ways that we think they could certainly do better. All of that said, you mentioned Lindor. Yes, they haven't done enough to surround them. We both agree on that. But can I also point to him and say he didn't do enough this year to help them get higher 100%. to where they need to be? He he had, and I mean, it was a good year. And from a lot of players' standards, they would say it was a great year. But by his standards and the, the sort of bar that he's created for himself and the way that he talks about earning Mookie Betts money, you better sure as shit get out there and perform like one of the best players in baseball. And too much this year, he didn't do that. He was a league average offensive player. Now, when you combine that with the defense, that's pretty good. You know, he's probably a four-win player, maybe a bit above that in a regular 162-game season. You'd love to have four-win players on your team. Playing shortstop, yeah, that's really good. But that we've seen Lindor much, much better. And I uh, we runners in scoring position, those sorts of stats are so fluky. But he didn't come through in those sorts of situations. The time when you're expecting your For star two years. to step up and be big and in the playoffs, step up and be big. And he hasn't done that. He, he certainly didn't do that in this series. The last two years, as you said, he has been bad with runners in scoring position. Do I think that makes him a bad player? No. Do I think that makes him unworthy of getting a big-time free agent contract? Absolutely not. But when we're talking about this team failing to reach the highs of what they could, he played a role in that this year by never... Ne by never getting to the, the, the plateau that he created for himself, the the sort of ability that he demonstrated, particularly two years ago, but even last year when he took a slight step back from 2018, we didn't even see that Lindor in 2020. It's 60 games, I know, and maybe over 100 more games he would have found his stroke, but he didn't, and he was part of the reason why they weren't higher-seeded and maybe would have avoided the Yankees in the first round. And he admitted it. I mean, he said today that he could have been better, that if he would have... He kind of, in a roundabout way, admitted to his struggles with runners in scoring positions, saying there were opportunities throughout the year when he'd have guys on second and third and one out, and he'd strike out or pop it up. Um, and he said he, he, he might have been the reason they didn't win the division. Now, wouldn't have made that much of a difference. You still have to win one of these gimmicky three-game series to advance. Um, and I don't know that... I mean, 
Obviously, the Yankees were not a good matchup for them, but there were other teams that also weren't a good matchup for them, so who knows. But, um, yeah, it, it, the tough thing is this is going to be the worst possible time to trade him. <laughs> they, they really... And I'm not saying this because it's revisionist history or because it's easy. It is easy to say now that we know that there was a pandemic, that we know teams are going to cry poor this winter. It's very easy to say they probably should have traded him last winter. Um, but they didn't. And so now it's going to be difficult. And I think what makes it more difficult to stomach is the fact that they've traded Bauer, traded Clevenger. I hate when people lump Kluber in with that because Kluber has not thrown a, a good pitch in two years. Um, that's completely different. And the alternative there option and let them walk. So at least they got something, although that most of that something hurt them in game two. It's unbelievable that the, the most valuable part of that trade was just the Rangers getting rid of Delino to not have his, his negative impact on the field. And he's a great guy and I feel bad piling on. Um, but man, he, he, when he makes mistakes, it always haunted them. So, but the fact that they traded Bauer, they traded Clevenger, and they didn't solve anything. Naylor had two good one. Um, I don't know if he is the the second coming. The fact that they pinch hit for him, the fact that they preferred Luplo against the righty over Naylor against the lefty, even though Naylor's hit over three hundred against lefties in his career so far, is a little head scratching. We don't need. I mean, you already referenced that weird move, ended up paying off somehow. Um, but the fact that they are already Pinch hitting for Naylor against lefties tells me he's not the second coming. And so, like, did you really solve a ton? I mean, Framil Reyes did not have a very good year. The fact that they just don't have a bona fide, I don't know, center fielder or field who they'll have for a while. And they just have all these slightly intriguing pieces, parts. And now you're going to trade Lindor at a non-opportune time. Um, usually this front office is really good at capitalizing on this sort of thing. I, I do still like the Bauer trade. I just think they didn't have much to show for any of that in 2020, and I think that hurt them. Yeah, Fran Mill performing like the, the guy he was in the middle, what, 20 games? If you want to separate it into thirds, uh, that would have looked, or that would have lifted this offense a lot higher, certainly when uh, you had the, the early season when he was slumping and the late season when he was absolutely slumping. We, we do see that he could still have those stretches where you can carry an offense, but it hasn't been prolonged enough or consistent enough to, to really live up to maybe the expectations that even you and I have. And when you look at below the surface for a guy that hits the ball as hard as he, as he does, he should be having more success than, than he does. I hope because I've, I saw a lot of this on social media last night, the, the, the preparation already underway for trading Lindor. And, and, and I saw one person say, oh, I, well, I, I, they should trade him. Absolutely. And, I can't wait to see them get back two stud players plus three really good prospects. Whoa, slow down. I think you might have to look at what the Red Sox got for Mookie Betts and maybe use that as your ceiling for what your expectations should be. I think the real preparation here should be if they trade Lindor, be prepared to get something you didn't think that was really going to be worthy of giving Lindor up. The alternative here is he plays out the last year and he walks and you get probably nothing at most, some compensation uh, through a draft pick for him leaving. So I, I don't know that the, the bar is set where it should for what people believe the Indians would get back in a Lindor trade. I think the expectation and what reality is is really far 
the the distance between them might not be be bridgeable. Yeah, I was already starting to kick around trades with the Marlins. I don't know. He seems that that's the one team that I feel like he'd be the perfect fit um, for a long term deal. But I'm with you. I think, and that's the thing is, I mean, they went quantity over quality with with the Clevenger deal. I don't like you'd prefer not, at some point you have to get a stud for one of these guys because these guys don't grow on trees. But I don't know if you know that that's possible. I think it might be a little bit more possible if you trade him to a team that could sign him to a long-term deal immediately, but I don't know if that's a thing Lindor would be interested in. Um, do you want to talk about everything he said today? What were, the, what were your initial takeaways? My initial takeaways are that he's really, really good. Usually he's had missteps, but he's good at PR. He's good at positioning himself as the golden boy. So that inevitably when he's traded, there are not very many people in Cleveland upset with him. And that the the vitriol and the anger goes toward ownership. I think that would be made a little bit easier if Lindor had a better season and a more memorable Um, But just judging by social media reaction, I think most people saw what he said today about, hey, billion dollar team, of course they can meet my price. And stuff like that and I think I think they eat it up you know the thing I get it we want our players to be candid like that yeah from a journalist standpoint much rather we've talked about this before have a guy say something that's brutally honest as opposed to something that's canned cliche and doesn't drive any sort of clicks to a website that's that's boring I do want someone to to tell me what they're thinking and if they're thinking I want to get paid then Thanks. Thanks for the quote. I absolutely love it. But I wonder truly how good he is at this PR game because he's playing a game that he can't lose. In a normal situation, talking about contract, and I know he was asked the question. It's not like he sat down and said, all right, guys, let's talk about how much I'm going to get paid after 2021. That's not how this went. You ask him questions, he answers them. He doesn't lead the conversation. That said, in an in a normal setting, a player sitting down and talking about how much money he could potentially make or uh, just payroll situations, things that, that he could earn, I don't know if that plays well hours after you get bounced from the postseason. Maybe it, it makes a bit more sense if he was a free agent going into this offseason, but he's not. He's still under team control for one more year. He's still a Cleveland Indian through 2021. But I don't think he ever really has to worry about stepping on too many landmines. In fact, I think he sort of did in tribe, at Tribe Fest last year. He was really talking out both sides of his mouth. He said, I really want to get paid and I'm all about getting the top dollar, but I would mm-hmm. really like to stay in Cleveland and it's not about the money. And I think he kind of got tripped up, but it never really mattered because everybody hates the Dolans. <laughs> Uh, even those that are fair to the Dolans aren't particularly fond of the way that they don't spend money. So is is he truly great at this PR game, or is it just a case of no matter what he said, I, I I can't imagine much that he could say that would that would drive Cleveland fans away from his comments. They might be upset right now with the way that he played towards the end of the year or the way that he played in the postseason, and I get that, and I think there's some of that out of there. But I don't think short of saying, I hate this town and the fans all suck, I don't think he could do much to get everybody on the side of, 
of the Indians and the Dolans and the size of their payroll and, and fans being okay with that. Yeah, and and it's a battle he can't lose because when was the last time the owner of the team spoke on the record to the media? To you, and it didn't go so well. Right. Well, yeah, but it's not just me because then he spoke to um, the audience at the... That didn't go any better. So because of that, he could, I don't know if it would build goodwill, but if Paul Dolan came out and said, this guy eight years for $270 million, and he said no. So sorry, that's a reasonable offer. What do you want us to do? Then I think it would get them off ownerships back. I don't know. But also, has that even happened? As the, the details we know are that the Indians haven't offered anything north of 300. Have they offered 250? I don't know. Have they offered 200? I don't know. Have they even talked in concrete figures like that since 2017? I don't know. So it, it's tough. When you have an owner that you, uh, he often sticks his foot in his mouth, it, it that hamstrings you in winning this battle and helping with perception. Important because, boy, if you ever want to turn this around, and it, like it's this is the chicken in the egg. I mean, you need attendance. You are saying attendance is going to be the reason why you're going to slash payroll this, this offseason. And yet, now we have this perception issue, and you're going to trade the face of the franchise. Like, how, how are hopefully be fans in the stands next year, at least in some capacity? But um, is, is it going to be anything that's really going to help the bottom line if if you're putting out this team that is so unfamiliar to the casual fan. I don't know. It, it's They're in a mess. And I still think, even if they lose Lindor and Santana and Hand, and, like the core of the team is good enough to keep this team afloat. I, I think people are a little bit misinformed about this. Like, I think there are people who think they're going to win 65 games next year. And it's like, well, you're still going to have Bieber, Carrasco, Plesak. I mean, maybe Carrasco. Bieber, Plesak, McKenzie, Savali... And then, I mean, Cal Quantrill and Logan Allen and Scott Moss. I mean, it, the list goes on. Like, you're still going to have a really good rotation. And you're they might have the have a... league MVP. I mean, they might have the MVP and the Cy Young yeah. coming back next year. And and so, like, they should still be, they should still have a winning record. And I'm not trying to, like, excite anybody because I am i don't know that they're a playoff team. And, and who knows what moves they end up making. You know, maybe if they slash all the payroll, they'll be able to trade for someone who is making a little bit of money. I don't know. Point is, and we don't even know what the playoffs will look like next year. How many teams yeah. are going to be? That's tough this to navigate isn't, now, too. Like this isn't the end of everything. It's I think it's the end of an era if you move Lindor. But there is still promise on the other side of this. It's just they've got to change something up. This isn't working. I don't know. Some some something with philosophy, and it's easy to pin it all on ownership, but. Like, you can't trot out... Uh, you know, I was doing some research on the outfield, and... Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. Do you know... So, the center... The player who has led the team in starts in center field has been different every year the last six years. This year it was Delano DeShields, who made 32 of the 60 games. Last year, Oscar Mercado, but it was less than half. The year before, 2018... Who started the most games in center field? Oh, my gosh. Uh, this was two years ago. I know. 
Rajay Davis. Reg Allen. What? Yep, 65. Uh, 2017, any guesses? Austin Jackson? No, he was second. Bradley Zimmer. Oh, okay. Makes sense. 2016, any guesses? That was Naquin. 2015, any guesses? Oh, God. This guy liked to uh, baseball the baseball. Uh, Oh, wait. uh, Michael Bourne? Yeah, but only 80 games. And you were about to say Abraham Almonte. He was second on the team. So (laughs) it's they've had a different person each of the last six years. And they have not had anybody start at least 100 games in center field since 2014, Michael Bourne. So it's like at some point you have to fix it. And if the drafting and developing of outfielders isn't working, and based on the fact that Clint Frazier plays for the Yankees, Bradley Zimmer has not shown he can do it. Um, Tyler Naquin, I think his future is in serious doubt now after the season he had and the the younger, cheaper pieces they have that can do what he does. Um, At some point, you have to fix this outfield. And you have to just make improvements to the roster that maybe you're uncomfortable with because... It's not working. And and we said this in an earlier podcast, but like, what did you learn this season? You know, you, you didn't win a playoff game, but you also didn't learn if Daniel Johnson's a big leader mm. yet. You didn't win a playoff game, and Nolan Jones, did he improve at anything in 2020? Or was it a wasted year of development? You didn't win a playoff game, but if you trade Francisco Lindor, you're going to have a hole at shortstop and a hole at second base, but you don't know if Tyler Freeman's ready to take either of those spots. I mean, you... you it's are, are you are you playing for the present or the future? Because it seems like neither. To fix center field, uh, I mentioned this a few episodes before. It's like it's gotten to a point. If if you could find anybody that could just hit <laughs> and play and just stand out in center field the way that even Naquin did in 2016, maybe even go that route. <laughs> I'm looking. Can can Nolan Jones just pick up a glove and go stand in center field? Is he athletic enough? Can he go the Joey Gallo route? Can can Daniel Johnson just man center field and let give him an opportunity? And this does come back to Oscar Mercado having just a dreadful year. You and I both thought that. I mean, it was realistic that he could not be as good as he was last year offensively, but he could still be capable enough with the speed and some above average defense that he would still be a valuable enough player in center field. And he, I mean, he was brutal at the plate to, to a point where he was so unplayable that even myself and I, I assume probably with you, I, I would like to see him continue to play in center field, but if going with the shields, it was like, okay, mm-hmm. I, I don't have a strong argument why Mercado should be playing uh, because of the way that he's hitting, even if he is still part of your future and you still think he can be someone that helps you for several years. So, uh, yeah, you're right. You didn't learn about a lot about that. Maybe the only thing you did learn is a little bit about the guy that someday replaces Terry Francona. I don't know if that's next year because we just don't know about Tito's health. We don't know if this is something that he's going to want to continue to do or is able to do. And I hate to speculate about it because we don't know enough about it, at least publicly. But it is something that is in the very much the front of my mind who is going to be leading this team in in 2021 and I think that's a fair question to ask because Tito was away for so long in in 2020 and it was this was a conversation we were even having before there was health issues to consider so maybe you learned something about 
Sandy Alomar and whether or not he could be your manager in the future. Yeah, with Tito, I, based on the conversation with him, and I don't want to speculate on anybody's health because who knows? I mean, that's unpredictable. I, I, I believe he wants to continue. I know he was, he was trying to make it back this year. I think it was just a more arduous recovery process than maybe um, he realized it would be, or just the fact that it was a shorter schedule didn't help him. Um, I, I would lean toward him coming back still next year, but yeah, nothing's, nothing's guaranteed. We don't, who knows? I keep coming back to, you either needed to surround the core of this team, which is a really good core. You have an incredible left side of the infield. And honestly, I mean, the infield in general, I know Santana had a bad year. Cesar Hernandez was fantastic. What a signing. He was great. He was the perfect guy for the top of the order to either hit in between Lindor and uh, Ramirez or ahead of them. And, you know, I was thinking last night when he had to go ahead, bloop single, like he's the perfect guy for those situations because he rarely strikes out. He always puts the bat on the ball and all your other cliches, gives you a professional at bat and yada, yada. But um, they needed to do a better job of surrounding that core with talent or play the young guys and see what they have. It has to be, it has to be one or the other. And there was way too much Domingo Santana and Delino De Shields and Sandy Leone. My God. <sighs> it just, it made no sense. I don't know what they were trying to accomplish. And when it all came down to it, who had to take the final at bat? Like we've seen so many years before. The last Michael guy on the bench. reincarnated. The last guy on the bench. Well, I thought it was going to be Oscar Mercado until he was very aware of the situation. And it was almost like he struck out on purpose and stuck off immediately. Sound strategy. If you know you're going to strike out against the oldest Chapman, got on base, and that left it to Austin Hedges. So in a situation where you have to go to that guy to take the at-bat, Sandy Alomar doesn't have a better alternative there. And... Uh, you could maybe point to roster construction entering the series. Did you need to carry an extra reliever like Adam Simber, or could you have brought somebody else up? Where's where is Daniel Johnson, or could they have brought back Domingo Santana? Even I would have preferred him in that situation to to Austin Hedges. Strangely enough, so I mean, there's a lot that we'll continue to pick apart for the next several months. That'll be the show as we look ahead to the future and all the things that. That could have been and should have been, and I hope we can find some fun some somewhere in between. I have the greatest trivia question of all time for you. We know Michael Martinez made the final out in 2016. Yes. We know Austin Jackson made the final out in 2017, although that was contested because Gary Sanchez didn't actually catch the pitch cleanly, and um, I think Austin Jackson is still on his way to first base. Um and last night, Austin Hedges made the final out. Boy, those are three really random players in Indians history. Can you guess who made the final out for the Indians in 2018 against the Houston Astros? Um, no, because the game was so far out of hand that I don't think either uh, we, either one of us was watching <laughs> for the final at bat. No, who was it? This is just this. This is perfect. Like I, I am so happy we have stumbled upon this. Um, because he fits perfectly. You had Michael Martinez, Austin Jackson, Austin Hedges, Melky Cabrera. The Melk Man. Grounded out. 
<laughs> that's that's perfect. You're right. Do you know who made the final out in the 1995 World Series Game Six? One nothing loss. Wasn't it Carlos Baerga? Yeah. Who was on deck? Because he made the final. He made the final. It happened three times, I think, in that series. Yep. Who was on deck? Albert Bell. Hmm. Lineup construction. Got to get your best hitter in the four spot where he gets fewer at bats. You can subscribe to the show. Well, Apple the Indians Pod- did the opposite of that this year. <laughs> Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, Spotify. Maybe if Albert Bell would have went storming in there and demanded to be in the leadoff spot like another certain superstar. Okay, we don't have any proof that he demanded to get to the leadoff spot. But he was reinserted there and performed worse than what he was doing leading up to that move. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, Spotify is where you can find the show. Of course, you can support the podcast over at Anchor. We do thank everybody that leaves us a five-star review over at Apple Podcasts. It helps us rise up the rankings and helps other Drive fans find the podcast and maybe helps shorten what could be a long off-season full of many questions to answer. The uh, 2013 wildcard game, by the way, Lonnie Chisenhall made the final out there. So that eh, that's not as good. Um Melky, Austin, Austin, and Michael. What a what a crew. Michael! Michael! I feel bad. You know, like this The Indians, this is 72 years um, that they haven't won a title. And it makes me think back to like like that was a thing when the Cubs were at that point. Um, that's when they were the lovable losers, and obviously theirs would extend another 36 years. For the sake of Cleveland fans, I hope the Indians can win one before 2056. But uh, I don't know. They've had a nice little opportunity here for the last six or seven years or so, and it just hasn't worked. For Zach Meisel, I'm TJ Zuppi. We'll see you in spring training. No, just kidding. We'll be back really soon. Promise. But until then, be strong, everybody. This is the Selby's Godcast. Signing off. Goodbye. The Selvius Godcast featuring Zach Meisel and TJ Zuppi is presented by our supporters at Anchor. To help support the podcast, visit anchor.fm slash Godcast. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, we sure hope you do, be sure to leave us a five-star review. And if you have suggestions, drop us a DM on Twitter at SelbyIsGodcast. Thanks for listening. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. 